0: For April 9th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 510. The frozen lake of ice at the bottom of all the reboots. overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve the overthinkers well we're like your smart funny friends from the internet we've been friends for a long time since back in the good old days and what we liked to do back then is what we return to repeatedly over and over we come together to uh, hang out and talk about the things that interest us i'm matt rather i am here with my good friends pete fenzel
1: Hey, Matt.
0: And Mark Lee. Hello. You know, it's been a while. Pete, are there any big developments in the world of Magic the Gathering?
1: (laughs) Why, yes. Thank (laughs) you so much for asking. I've been sitting here waiting for you to ask about Magic the Gathering. For months.
0: Years, perhaps.
1: Years, even. Years. (laughs) Years. Definitely. And I know I've mentioned it sometimes, but I like Magic the Gathering. And it's, you know what? It's kind of a movement. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, And in fact, it's sort of uh, sister and and inspired by products are also a big deal. The whole world of customizable and tradable card games is a big deal. And uh, Hearthstone notwithstanding, the big deal with Magic the Gathering right now, other than trying to launch a Hearthstone-like app called arena uh, for your desktop and whatnot we won't go into that is they are going back to dominaria <gasps> so wow. guys this summer you will be experiencing nostalgic reboots of literally everything anyone can think of <laughs> and magic the gathering will not be left behind so it's actually a really interesting uh I'll step back from the story and not necessarily go into the specifics right away, but give you sort of a general sense for what it means for Magic the Gathering to go back to Dominaria. And I'm going to frame this in a way that if you don't play the card game, you can still kind of get the idea, right? So, Magic is created like 1993, uh, way back in the day, and we're at like the 25th anniversary of it now. But it's created in 1993 as something for people to do between games of Dungeons and Dragons, and it and then blew up to be this huge thing and this whole new kind of game that would be really popular all over the world, and itself become this sort of big phenomenon. But at the time, it was something to do between games of Dungeons and Dragons, and it had a fantasy theme. And so, if I were to ask you guys. You know what do you consider to be elements of a fantasy theme? I mean, Matt, rifle off like five elements of a fantasy theme for
0: you. Uh, dragons, sure. Um, w- magic, like wizards. Not not magic. Sure. Not Matt. I mean, that's like Magic the Gathering. It's like uh, that's a, a, a an exercise in question begging. But like you know, wizards and stuff like that. Sure, um, sure. Like uh, a certain kind of uh, sexist, scantily clad aesthetic to the artwork.
1: <laughs> Sure, sure, like sure.
0: A, a certain kind of like reverse Fabio kind of yep. uh, kind of situation. All I can't right, can't
1: believe it's not butter. Sure, right. definitely, it <laughs> okay. is butter. Actually, it, it is. Yeah, that's Fabio. that's how they get it all. That's how they get it all shiny.
0: Um, the, you uh, hit the
1: bird in the face as opposed to the bird hitting you in the face. That's the reverse Fabio. <laughs> no, anyway, continue. Uh, all right.
0: Uh, uh, let's see. Like um, like sort of more uh, nefarious monsters like orcs and goblins or things like sure. this and. Sure. Uh, archaic weaponry like trebuchets and uh, and bows and arrows.
1: Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, Mark, can you think of anything else that for you smacks of like fantasy? Uh, dungeons, sure. Uh, collecting
2: collecting treasure,
1: sure. Um, different character classes: mm-hmm. uh, mage, paladin, yep, wizard, clerics, so on and so forth. Yep. White knights, black knights, all sorts of stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, great. Okay. So all of this stuff was in. Magic the Gathering, pretty much from the beginning, all of this stuff. I don't even have to go into the specific cards that it all represents, but it's a card game where you could play as all this stuff. And in order for it to feel like it had a sense of uh continuity there is this sort of lore that's peppered through it and the lore at the beginning some of it is like real world quotations from shakespeare and coleridge and stuff and, and some of it is from the various characters that they've made up some of it is sort of descriptive and tone setting about the things that you're looking at it's like little words at the bottom of the cards but you add it all up and, and you start seeing sort of different characters that start coming back and sort of the names of specific sorts of of wizards and and creatures and, and whatnot And so the way that the trajectory of Magic the Gathering was it took all of this and then people started doing all this sort of add on stuff like books about it and comic books and and it kind of built an extended universe in which the card game Magic the Gathering. Uh, The events that are depicted in the card game Magic the Gathering ostensibly take place in this universe. And this universe is uh, – in there's this one big plane of existence uh, called Dominaria. And so what Dominaria is, is it's it's kind of a – a holding place for all of the sorts of stuff that you would consider to exist in sort of classical fantasy. And Dominaria is created as kind of a big bucket for all these things to fit in. And then over time, years, you know, we're talking like they did an extended narrative that lasted for, you know, like seven years at least uh, of, of a particular set of adventurers. They eventually kind of like take all this big fantasy stuff and they narrow it down into a specific set of characters who then go through an adventure, and you could actually, over a couple of the sets, line up all of the cards in this card game in sequence and read the adventure and and how it happened, if you were compelled to do this for some reason. Uh, And and this adventure kind of plays out and has its huge dramatic arcs and heroic stories, and and eventually it kind of, like, runs its course. And what they determine at this point is, like, all right, We're a little bit lost (laughs) in telling the stories uh, because Dominaria and everything that's in it is just there's just so much of it that we need to kind of stop. And and telling the story in order is not really leading us to an interesting place to keep going. You know, it's like this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And it's just like you have to keep kind of uh, making things up and 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 jumping into the story at any given time is going to make it almost impossible to appreciate. And so what they switch to is a more thematic way of doing it. So instead of having like, the set where the crew gets the airship and like the set where there's like a interplanetary crisis, like an Avengers movie where there's aliens coming or whatever, or, like the set where the heroes like go to the evil plane full of machines. Like instead of having like the steps in the story be what frames the sets, they start doing themes for whole worlds. So it's like fairy tale world, samurai world. Right. Uh, they they did one that was like there's like pirates in the world. There's uh, you know, there's a world that's mostly robots. Right. And so they go from this kind of longitudinal style of storytelling where they're following this one world for a really long period of time. And, and this sort of big bucket narrows down the specific characters and they kind of follow it and follow it and follow it and follow it until it stops. To going into sort of like, well, we're not going to tell a story that's progressing longitudinally. We're going to kind of create a sort of theme that you can encounter at any point. You open any one card and it kind of ex- it shows you the theme that we're dealing with. And that's how we're going to tell the story. There's going to be the year of the cons versus the dragons, right, which takes place on like a uh, – a step which has time travel, and it's like, is the world gonna be ruled by roving horsemen or is it gonna be ruled by dragons? Like, we don't know. We have to use magical spells to figure out. Like, cool ideas, granted, you know, a universe that's split into five pieces that have five different natures, but you stay in each one for like a year and then you move on. Uh, which I think, I think moving on is something that the pop culture. Uh, kind of needs at this point. <laughs> like, like, I think our pop culture in general is having trouble with the idea of moving on to something else <laughs> and and that there's a fear that's that's it manifest materially. It's manifest in kind of business. Uh, it's manifest in the way that the hero's journey is kind of used and abused and kicked around and the way that kind of origin stories and team-up stories are used and abused and kicked around. You're going to be seeing a lot of this all through the summer with all the big blockbusters. But But what I wanted to tell you is that Finally, after doing like a sort of nostalgia trip in the mid aughts where they like did a set which was like this is what dominaria would be like in the future with tons of references and uh and like we're going to retcon everything and make everything fit and make the extended universe fit again uh which was very forced and complicated they're now saying okay they're bringing us back to dominaria the original place where magic the gathering the story started but they are resetting it to sort of be an appreciable scope, and they're giving it a sort of theme of history and remembrance. Like there's a demon that erases history and replaces important characters in history with itself. So it becomes all the important historical characters. Uh, and, and, but that's not that's not notwithstanding. The, the point is that that uh, that it is going that there's they are going on a nostalgia trip that has taken this like very, very long and securitous route through different sorts of ways of how do we keep? Doing this, We have to create this commodified subscription kind of entertainment where we need people to keep coming back every year for new stuff. This can't just be your favorite book that you take off the shelf. This isn't just your favorite board game that you take out of the cabinet. We have to create an experience that compels you to want to buy new cards to play this game. And so first we're going to do this with a longitudinal story. Then we're going to do it with sort of thematic storytelling. Now we're doing it with kind of a nostalgia appeal. And and I guess what I posit this to you guys is what is like, um, what are you still excited to go back to? Yeah, I mean, we did Wrinkle in Time, which was sort of like, oh, you know, can anyone even go back to Wrinkle in Time? We did Ready Player One, where it's like we're going back to everything all at the same time. And it's not quite doing it for us, uh, at least for me. Right. We're in the middle of Star Wars, which we're going to have a whole other bunch of stuff to talk about when Solo comes out, no doubt where there's just a ton and the last Jedi kind of throwing a big old chicken bone in the throat of star Wars nostalgia. But there's this sense of like, what is there still left to go back to that? That what is it there in the old stories that is worth making new? And then also like, how the heck do you move on? Like, what do you go to next? Next, and so I would say that like we're at a moment that's at a bit of a kind of um, in the genre cycle. If you go from sort of like the, the sort of experimental to like the classical through to like the Baroque and the parodic back into the experimental and classical, like magic is trying to get back to the classical. Because we've gone through this sort of like postmodern, really deconstructed notion of what magic cards are. And it's like trying to get back through experimentation to some sort of new classical that could be the new model for the next 15 years of reboots. and, I mean, I know that there's a market cycle with people aging and youth. But, I mean, I've said a lot. I can hear Matt breathing. So, I'm going to see the floor. I uh, I, I
0: breathed several times, actually. The, the, <laughs> I just – I was on mute. Uh, Sorry. For, for... I didn't
1: pass priority. So, oh, yeah, damage for... was off the stack. So, it was <laughs> – magic jokes
0: sorry guys <laughs> no we <laughs> anyway, I, I mean we love we love the magic jokes please i mean what else you know i don't know i like i actually i know i know we have an a, a direction we agreed to go with this but i actually kind of want to talk about like what is the relation narratologically between the quote unquote story embodied in different sets of packs of cards and the the stories that are generated by uh play of the game you know mm-hmm. each of which is its own its own kind of narrative right like because does it uh, it's an interesting thing to have a story right that progresses irrespective of who wins or loses any particular game and you can kind of reset to a default state or something maybe it's not interesting yeah. maybe you just no, maybe it is, it's like I the simpsons because you reset to a uh, to a default state but like to, to actually take your your actual question at face value and maybe integrate the other thing in later in a uh, stunning feat of improvisation um- <laughs> I always say that, you know, the, the pauses, the hesitations, the ums, the stuttering, the thing like that in our podcast is a sign of its intellectual ambition, right? Everyone else is reading from an effing script, you know, and that's, uh, yeah, that's nice. Like, oh, that's, that's super WNYC. Like, I, I could sound really smart off the cuff, too, if I wrote down all of my thoughts beforehand. Listen... <laughs> <laughs> if you have the pop culture or a boros, right? If you have, the, if you have the generational centipede, you know, that's, uh, that's just passing the same, um, kind of metabolizing and passing along, if you will, the same yeah. pop culture properties from, from one generation to a next, from, to the next, at a certain point, it's, um, at a certain point, like, don't you run out of, of, source material right like the, the 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 Simpsons did a joke where there was a machine that regenerated characters from the Simpsons so there were like 3 Homers uh and then like 30 Homers and then 3000 Homers or something and then but they degraded every time so uh you know of course in the background they had a picture of Peter Griffin uh as the you know the most degenerate uh, the Most degenerate form of Homer Simpson. Um, that uh, that that. Like, are are we in danger of sort of lo- of of decay? Signal decay, right? Like, mm-hmm. as these things go out, or are we just going to are we just going to run out run out of things? You know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I whenever I think about whenever I think about rebooting and stuff like this, I I uh nostalgia has always been a thing, right? Back in in the days of the Homeric uh, epics where it's like, "Oh, tell me that one about Menelaus and Helen again. She was a real bee, wasn't she?" You know, <laughs> tell me that story about the domestic life where they're sniping at one another and things. And it's like, "Okay, like let's start at the beginning of the Odyssey." Um the whole, you know, there there is this is not a new this is not a new phenomenon i i wonder though whether the the phenomenon uh of reboots uh the phenomena but of like the you know the muppets coming back to abc and other things um has to do with incre- an increasingly fragmented marketplace for entertainment and the need for sort of marquee names to uh the need for marking names to sort of attract attention, right? You have to have kind of blockbuster sized attention, but you, there isn't, you know, the, the overnight successes are, are created over a period of years, if not decades. And that's, you know, that, that's the, the famous thing that people say now about Seinfeld is it would have been canceled in its, its first six episodes and not given what two or three years or whatever it took for it to, uh, to find its footing and go on to become, You know, uh, to become a blockbuster and like, you know, you can bet that in 20 years, there's going to be like retirement home Seinfeld, right? Like the golden, uh, I don't know the, the, the golden man children, right? Like that's, uh, that's gotta be a thing that's, that's coming down the pipe. Um, And that, like, uh, uh, the, the particular combination of short attention span and fragmented marketplace, right, is like a market reality that leads to the increasing prevalence of... Uh, of things like this because like hey i like that han solo guy um tell me about tell me tell me more about that that han solo guy tell me about the time that that he uh he grew up and then the director was fired and then the, a new director was hired like that would not the the homeric bards right like the homeric tradition would have no problem kind of compre- comprehending that sort of mm-hmm. um interaction with storytelling
1: so I'm going to answer your second question with your through answering your first question. Oh, that's good. Okay, so in a game of Magic the Gathering, right, the way that it used to be considered was that the story uh, that the, the sort of narrative, the narrative that you are experiencing when you are engaging in the in a game of magic is that you are battling against the person who is sitting across from you at the table. And you both of you are powerful planeswalker wizards. And you are able, and what your cards represent are things that you know. They are things that you're aware of. They, they've existed at some point in the fantasy world, but as a wizard, you're, you are aware of them and you know how they work. And as such, you can summon them. You could say, oh, um, I've seen the Fast and the Furious movies. I'm going to pull the 1970 Dodge Charger from the Fast and the Furious movies, and then that's going to drive around and I'm going to have it fight you. This is sort of like Ready Player One, I guess, a little bit. But the idea that all of the lore that existed in Magic the Gathering existed in order to be drawn into the present experience narrative of the battle that you were engaging with uh, across the table with the other person. And so you could then look at elements that were on the table and see how they might conflict or contradict with each other. And they had certain ways that they were made to conflict and contradict with each other based on their color. Like there were, you know, there's five colors. It's like red, white, blue, black, and green. And the colors have enemies and the colors have friends. And so the way you mix and match it would be like, okay, well, if you are playing red and I'm playing white, that means my cars are going to naturally be enemies of your cards. And so there's going to be kind of a secondary narrative that's related to the pre-existing enmity between what I'm playing and what you're playing, as they as it kind of conflicts with each other. But it's in service to the larger narrative of me fighting against you. And the way that this kind of proceeded was, uh, it became difficult because locating the story that matters, quote unquote, with the player uh, meant that the protagonist couldn't be relatable. <laughs> like if the person who matters is the human who is who is engaging with the content. Then uh, you must find, as we all found out again from Ready Player One, but also from Star Wars, you must reduce that human in order to portray it. Right. In order to sort of portray the consumer within the context of the world that you're portraying, you have to reduce it. You probably have to make gender choices about it. You have to make racial and ethnic choices about it, language choices in order to make it a person that can be seen and heard and right. experienced in the mind's eye, you need to reduce it and make it smaller than the idea of the person who was like watching and playing the game. And then, over, and, But so that what they ended up doing is they ended up shifting the focus to the narrative that's happening in the world of the cards, wherein e- the sets would come out like three in a year, and the first set would be the first act of the story, the second act would be the second act of the story, and the third act would be the third act of the story. And as the new sets came out, the events and creatures that would be on the field in the battlefield would represent like the increasing progression of the story. So like if there's a big cataclysm that happens, you're not going to experience that on the game until like the sixth month of the year. And that's sort of when the card comes out. But the idea is then that the player kind of vanishes and the protagonists become the protagonists in the game. Um, And then they even came out with cards that were supposed to kind of offer a personality proxy for the player uh, I won't even get into that so much, but but, I think that the idea is that, like, um, are our heroes in our stories supposed to be us? Is I think a big part of what what uh, is the consideration because um, in terms of what's exhaustive about engaging with the popular culture and what needs to kind of be renewed and pushed forward like is is the because it seems like the big trend with the reboots now is to try to kind of like correct for the reduction that's been taking place as we've taken the kind of Luke Skywalker postulate that the audience needs a surrogate. And that we need the surrogate to be generic as possible and identifiable and relatable and kind of spreading that wealth around like a larger uh, collection of of different kinds of people. So like different types of people might recognize themselves in it. And yet we're still kind of dwelling with a lot of the same stories uh, or the same property as it's being consumed. And so I guess what I'm I guess what I'm engaging with here is just this idea of like if we feel like there's an impoverishment that's happening, it might be that. That while we are trying to change the kind of uh, relatable personage in the story, like the rest of the story, it's successful. It's more successful when the rest of the story is also being enlarged in some new and interesting way. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of spitballing here, but I'm curious what you think. Well, it's, it's, oh, oh, oh,
2: uh, let me get in here for a yeah. second. Uh, I'll, I'll, the answer is just kind of very surface level, Pete, your question around um, this nostalgia project and like, uh, you know, is, is one of the purposes of it uh, spreading the wealth around um, so that. Uh, people who feel like you know the the characters in the pop culture represent themselves and want to see more of themselves in it. Um, that is absolutely going on, right? Oh, yeah, why, yeah. Which yeah. is why Star Wars has Ray. Which is why I will put like a Peter Parker, a Spider Man is also Miles Morales in the comics and some animated yeah. movies. And black Black as Panther well too. is
1: is huge, right? But is beyond yeah. huge. We have to we have to account for black the Black Panther in the room. Right. is what everyone needs to acknowledge something has changed. You know, so So.
2: that is absolutely going on. And I think it seems like it's debatable whether that is an enriching thing or a sign of enrichment of our pop culture landscape or is a sign of a poverty of new ideas. I think it can be both. I don't think that's too bold of a statement to say it's both at the same time.
1: I mean, you could look at it and point out successes and failures. Right. Like it seems like Black Panther is an enrichment, but it seemed like the Ghostbusters reboot kind of wasn't an enrichment. Uh, in the sense that, like, it doesn't seem to to like call for an energy for new stories. But then again, I'm also not the target audience for it, so it's hard to say. But it's like, um, are you doing anything other than that? I mean, I don't well, know. Well, it wasn't it wasn't taken up by the the
0: Ghostbusters reboot, though. Though, let's be clear about it. Like, I I, I hate it when people in the in politics say that. I want to be clear. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I wasn't doing any particular. President, um, the uh, we like that movie, and we talked oh, about yeah, we, yeah. we talked about liking it on the podcast. We're we're on record as being pro yeah. Ghostbusters Ghostbusters reboot. But it's fair to say that it wasn't a that that opinion wasn't uh, shared by the majority of people who seem to be talking about it. Um, in the way that Black Panther is awesome was uh, was an opinion shared by I think the majority of people who actually saw the film. Um, it also wasn't taken up. Ghostbusters wasn't taken up by the culture in you know in the uh in the same way that black panther has been right as like yeah. a, as sort of a moment um as a moment for a movement you know as a moment for a um a kind of realignment uh and kind of new energy a, a new hope if you will yeah. for the uh for the culture so like okay like i like, like but can we consider this question of like whether this i mean yeah, it's an interesting question, right? Like, uh, I think to the extent that the sort of average avatar that, that, uh, we're giving the lie to the idea that the quote unquote average avatar for a viewer of an entertainment property is Luke Skywalker, right. Is a young white yeah. dude, right. Uh, who just wants to work on the power converters. Um, <laughs> the, I think that's all to the good, right. Because like, yes, yes, the, oh, definitely. you know, cause that is a, that is a huge aspect of sort of structural racism, sexism, oppression, all the, all the kind of, you know, societal level, um, oppressive systems like the idea that uh there is an average and it is it just happens to uh it happens to sort of uh, to map onto the hegemonic ideal or the kind of hegemonic yeah the hegemonic ideal person like that that is an idea that we need to sort of dismantle and you know to the extent that it needs to be re- that the damage by that idea needs to be remediated in the culture we need to take extra effort to um you know to dismantle it uh we can't just like we can't just like snap to snap to the ideal final state you know yeah. right and pretend that the damage hasn't been done we have to remediate the damage before we can sort of get to uh, get to a, get to a final state right and that that you know the the way to do that is hotly contested and i frankly don't feel like talking about it but the, no no, no. The, the other part to answer your question of like so does this mean that the audience needs a surrogate right uh the, it's the answer seems to be having its cake and eating it too right like the the uh having its having its um uh, funfetti rainbow cake and and eating it as well because like it's not just uh, it's not just one color of frosting right like we don't need we don't need one color of frosting like as a surrogate uh, cake as a surrogate for the cake right like we need a funfetti potpourri a, a you know uh, of different uh, colors and textures of different kinds of surrogates right and the idea that like uh, the idea that that we need a surrogate may be diminishing but we need surrogates or that that everyone everyone needs needs a surrogate right like that's the issue the kind of the issue with with representation seems to be uh, or the kind of the the push towards broader representation of different groups in heroic roles in the uh you know in blockbusters wrinkle in time was an example of this uh for example um Right? Like, no, we need, you know, it's good, it's good for the culture to have a movie where an African American girl, young girl, is the hero of, you know, of the movie and sort of saves the universe, right? Like, I think this, this begs the question of whether we need universe saving, uh, movies in general. But, you know, if we're gonna have them, right? More kinds of people than Luke Skywalker should probably save the universe. Okay, that's, I mean, that's good, but now, uh then it it's not a rejection of the idea of an avatar it's a kind of decomposition of the idea of of an avatar in into you know something that that uh sort of something that that everyone needs now I think that that's true, right? Like as you're growing up, as you're sort of developing, and even as an adult, as you're like renegotiating and renegotiating your place in the world, I think there need to be imaginative models, right? And, and this is one of the things that art does. There need to be imaginative models for how you can sort of think metaphorically about yourself, the world, your place in the world, how to resolve various tensions, how to kind of get past various conflicts or move through them. And, uh, and that's a that's a um that's a super uh you know that's a super important thing and i think to 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 a you know i'm just playing devil's advocate uh objection that this is the um that this represents the, a kind of death of death of the mass culture, right? Like that 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 you know, it represents a kind of death of social unity uh, somehow, right? That uh, we're sort of well, now everybody needs an action hero, uh, you know, every, all the all the groups, even the ones that don't really matter, right? Like the 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 question sort of invalidates itself, or the objection sort of invalidates itself. Um, I, I would say that that your your Social unity was always a crock, right? Because, <laughs> yeah. because it because <laughs> yeah. it was built on it was built on oppression and exclusion, uh, and not on an actual not on an act uh, an actual uh, re- kind of reality based. Um, you know, look look at the uh, look at the world. I don't know. I'm spitballing too, Pete. But this, I mean, the idea of whether we need uh, whether we need advocates or not, or whether we need surrogates, we need avatars inside. I mean, we don't need. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we needed Avatar, and I'm not. I'm s- certain we don't need the sequels to Avatar. But but I was
1: what hoping you were to say we don't need we didn't need surrogates starring Bruce Willis, which, <laughs> which is a deep cut anyway, <laughs> Like
0: Like uh, um. I mean, uh, probably not need, right? Uh, but the uh, uh, but the the impulse is strong, and um, and I think the way it's working is is changing a lot.
1: Yeah. So this is interesting. So I like the distinction that you're making between the uh, the sort of corrections and and the kind of uh, the sort of geopolitical corrections that we're discussing as kind of one dynamic, but also this sort of act of imagining on the other side, in terms of what are the metaphorical imaginings that we're using to frame our storytelling as as, as that's sort of the the scaffold into which these other questions are are built. Or by which, you know, by which guidance these other questions are built. As in, like, you set out to build a Ghostbusters, uh, you—and I would say say it's like the new Ghostbusters felt like a late Ghostbusters, not like an early Ghostbusters. It felt like an end of the road. It felt like it was something that was emerging from a long tradition and was kind of having something like the last word on that tradition, not like something that was— imagining a new way forward with a new sort of metaphorical, symbolic, metonymical relation between fiction and reality, uh, between kind of person and world and all these other sorts of things. And so when you keep rebooting and remaking, and again, I'm not against these things in general, but I do sense a certain amount of fatigue <laughs> that that even I, I can't deny at this point for, uh, for sort of deep, like knee-deep, waist-deep rebooting. And, and it seems to be located in this metaphorical symbolic scaffold that is used for the storytelling much less than in the who or the what of of like who gets portrayed and what gets portrayed um and I mean, I guess it, what I'm saying is like I'm, I'm really excited for Dominaria and Magic the Gathering, but I also really preferred the way in which of thinking about Magic the Gathering, wherein the player was kind of an unknowable wizard where anything they could have access to anything and, and anything could come out of their deck. Uh, as opposed to the idea that they were present in a very specific place and time in a particular sort of predetermined narrative um, and that that was a useful metaphorical tool for me in engaging with that content uh, and kind of having it feel meaningful. Uh, like the person that, you know, are you playing the person? Are you playing the board? Chess is like that, too, where if if every chess game is just sort of a reboot of every previous chess game, it gets really boring really fast. But I mean, it, I, that's my take on it anyway. But like the person involved uh, is is so much bigger than the idea of any one game uh, and doesn't necessarily fit strictly within the confines of the game. If you like the sort of storytelling that's around chess. Um, and so it's like a new metaphor, like like the sh- chess, it's like in chess there's a couple of big changes that happen in the way that the story is told even though you're talking about a game where every game at least at the beginning is exactly the same as every other game for the most part Uh, but like you go from the old school kind of hustler style where people are doing all the tricks and sacrifices to the sort of classical style where people are paying attention to the pawn structure and it's like you can look at the kind of beards that people have or the names that they have and like feel that the, the narrative of the game has been like changed in what it represents has changed even now that we're in this sort of computer post-human transhuman era of chess that's still a story to tell that's different from just the story of like i move my pawn you move your pawn i move my knight you move your knight right like and so how do we keep or what are we craving in terms of stories that feel like they still have like a metaphorical or symbolic urgency or purpose or newness or whatever it is that comes out of it uh, in this world in which so much stuff is always being recycled I don't know. I mean, other other g- backgammon. I don't meritivize backgammon. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a oh, no,
0: really? Like, I, don't you feel like there's a whole thing with, like, knocking people off the board and the, you know, <laughs> that that at all really?
1: Well, I'll, I'll ask you this. Say that say that it's finally time to reboot Alf. How do you do it? How do you you reboot Elf in a way that doesn't feel totally cashed out and emotionally and mentally exhausted? Oh, sure. (laughs) I mean, like, like, how does that even happen? Will it happen? How does it happen? What's the deal with Elf? What's the deal with Elf? I think it's going to be right now. Oh, wow.
0: That's uh, is this are we in the the nursing home? Are we in the the, uh, (laughs) elder care facility now? And uh, which one am I? Uh, Considering
1: I can't dab without tearing my rotator cuff, I think we're out to pasture at this point. Yeah. But I think you get to be Blanche if you want, or you can be Dorothy. <laughs> you, can be, you can be whichever one. Everyone can be. Everyone can be their own golden girl in their own mind. I think is kind of the moral of <laughs> the story.
2: Does that us some context for the Alf portion of this conversation, yeah. <laughs> I re- I always bring up Alf as yes. like the bottom of the barrel intellectual property that has not been rebooted yet that when it hits you'll know that you've hit that, bottom, that that barrel bottom and it will probably be intellectually bankrupt creatively bankrupt morally bankrupt as well let's go there but pete it sounds like the question you're trying to ask here is like you know if we get to that point is there a way to make that a redeemable project at all
1: you know what i'm gonna shift i'm gonna move the goalposts on you right now and point it okay. out- so as you're saying this i'm thinking of dante and i'm thinking of how dante imagines the deepest circle of hell right as <laughs> okay. as a as a lake of ice uh-huh. in which satan is buried up to his waist uh, chewing on the heads and the and the torsos of the greatest traitors in the history of humanity and that there's this there that dante in his cosmology at the very, very bottom of hell, there is the lake of ice. And I think, what, does he go through the lake of ice to get to purgatory? I'm not sure. But the idea that Dante has to poetically create a bottom for hell, because, like, it's this descent through hell, and it's just awful and awful and awful and awful. And, and at the bottom is the, is the frozen lake of ice. And I'm just sort of wondering, in all of this, is it less the idea that rebooting is actually being exhausted— That we're actually running out of ideas, quote unquote, and more that that there's that I'm feeling, and I don't know if you're feeling this too, a craving for that lake of ice. What is like the frozen lake of ice at the bottom of all the reboots that, that we can sort of imagine or bring into being that like lets us know that we've reached the end. Even if it's just like notional and we never actually see it. Cause like the idea that it's like, hey guys, we're coming back after ten years since our last reboot of magic and rebooting magic again for a second time with the same story, right? Um it's it's not quite there. But if like but it's like we're it, it, there's got to be something past it. Like I'm still excited for Dominaria, but like there's going to be something that's just going to be that one step that's just way too far, right, and has to be the end. And so I guess I'm imagining that like in that frozen lake of ice, at in the hell of of, of like lack of – of the death of imagination – Alf is buried up to his waist, like chewing on the torso <laughs> of a cat, right?
2: <laughs>
1: it's just like Gordon Shumways all the way down from there into like the pit of existence. Right? It's just like... <laughs> and that's how that's and that's and when you finally get to Mount Purgatory, where you have to, to gradually purge yourself of, of, you know, like watching every reboot of everything that's ever happened, you know, and all the ghost riders and all the punishers and everything uh, before you finally get to the mountaintop where you can hear something new for the first time. Time, uh which ends up being something old from your childhood which is the sort of joke that it all plays on you but anyway um that's what i'm thinking so rather what's on what's your lake of ice well, What's <laughs> your sort of like deepest circle of hell of reboot that you just can't get down any farther than that i mean i think it might be though i can think of a way to do
0: alf right as like yeah, yeah, a, yeah. as a as a metaphor for the immigrant experience Ooh, you know that's a- Right, yeah, like that that because because Alf is this sort of undocumented uh, traveler, you know, yeah. who has to be like hidden from from the authorities. I feel like uh, to me it might be Small Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> you remember? You
1: remember Small Wonder? Oh, of course, of I, course. I should. It was do some... my secret identity, but a small girl with a little frock, <laughs> right? I got (laughs) to Yeah, yeah, I I have
0: to look back at that. I have to look back at that. I haven't seen it uh, in a while. I'll bet it looks very different to me now than it looked growing up when I was, you know, in the single digit ages. But that too, right, like is one about the perils of of artificial intelligence. It becomes like, uh, like Terminator at Sarah Chronicles was supposed to be with uh, what's his name? Garrett Dillahunt, right? Like as John Henry, the the uh the embodiment of artificial intelligence trying to um uh trying to like help uh, Shirley Manson prevent or cause the downfall of uh, D- judgment day and skynet and and uh you know all of these things it was very uh i don't know it was very con- confusing i wasn't totally sure um,
1: well, i ha- i have to well actually myself also just quickly um, which is that i just i think i made a my secret identity reference when i really needed intended to make a not quite human reference we're talking about late 80s stuff that was on the disney channel oh, yeah. so sorry anyway anyway go ahead, go Wait, on continue, it was
0: small continue. wonder on the disney channel
1: no, no, okay. not quite human. Ones. Got it. So, so these are sort of like this was back when there were a lot of shows that had people with hair like Alan Thick, and some of them were actually Alan Thick. So this is an Alan Thick <laughs> uh, sci-fi family movie, which I think was made for TV in 1987 about an android teenager, which I I saw before I saw Small Wonder, but might actually not be as old as Small Wonder, um, and I and I think it had a. Uh, and, and then I confused it with My Secret Identity, which was a Jerry O'Connell vehicle, which which aired at somewhat near the same time on the Disney Channel uh, the, in the sort of same audience.
0: I mean, was Small so. Wonder was at was once kind of like a, a a Buffy the Vampire Slayer-esque metaphor for being a teenager because, like, it's, you know, you're sort of like a uh, an awkward robot, right? Uh, and right. at the same time, it was a power fantasy for parents who could kind of like uh, – if only you could sort of program your teenagers teenager to to you know behave small, follow rules small
1: wonder was, was like not a teenager dude small wonder was a child <laughs> right? like, god that's
0: because i was a teenage i was a child i was a younger child when yeah. <laughs> i when i watched it and she vicky and her brother seemed like big kids to me you know so that's <laughs> that's funny. in my head and that's just how i how i remember it you know that they were like uh that they were teenagers but yeah i guess they were like what like uh 10 years old or something like that
1: yeah, it was okay. So Jerry, so say, so, 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 so Tiffany Prissett, the actress who played Vicky, when the show came on in 1985, was 11 years old. Oh wow,
0: they were kids, so, yeah,
1: yeah. But at the same time, but of course, she was a robot, uh, so or an android, right? right? So, so she so,
0: was actually she was even younger than that, right? Yeah, she was like it two ran
1: for four years. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: two or three. Yeah, she was like two or years three. Old. Yeah, totally,
1: exactly. But she was a teenager by the end of it. But I also kind of feel like. The, yeah, character, Jerry, the character
0: didn't age, though, on the show, right?
1: And it had that weird apron. That apron, or that is that a frock? I don't know what to refer to well, it. Yeah, it that is little- a sort
0: of Victorian idealized girlhood sort of, you know what I mean, signifier of, of Victorian-type innocence, uh, you know, where there's always a... Uh, um we, you know where where there's this sort of obsessive focus on sort of girl like purity like masks a really deep ambivalence and and sort of a dark uh you know a kind of dark sense of threat uh in in the world threat from within the family i mean i guess the the fantasy for parents right is that you can kind of keep the kid uh, you can kind of keep the kid the way they are, right? Like the the sort of ravages of time don't turn your don't turn your you know adorable befrocked little angel into a, a teenager with all the all the sort of anxieties that that provokes and all the the you know horrid horrid things about being a teenager.
1: Yeah, I would even posit an an alternative through line that was concurrent, which was I think that. That small wonder represented the uh, the the sort of mechanical horror of caring for a child. Yep. <laughs> in that, like a, a child is a tremendously complex machine in its physical body that requires uh, the utmost sorts of care, but operates without much knowledge of how it actually is. Like you're you as a parent caring for a child, you don't really know a lot about the parts of the child, like. You might not know whether its circulatory system is functioning correctly or whether it's going to poop, whether or when it's going to poop, right? When or when it's going to cry? uh, You know, how does its hair grow and all these sorts of weird things that your child comes with standard uh, standard equipment that you have no training or experience in? And the idea that, like, caring for a child is something sort of like – uh, maintenance on a robot <laughs> and that that like yeah, and that yeah. the small wonder in the child is is ambivalent towards its own existence. Like the child is constantly seeking out ways that it might potentially kill itself by <laughs> like you know sticking its fingers in things or putting things in its mouth, uh, and and that uh and that the sort of regarding the child as an android with this sort of inhuman affect represents the sort of gulf in perspective between the parents efforts to care for the child and the child's like disregard for the importance of those efforts i suspect although there's also i think the idea of the adolescent which is what makes small wonder uncomfortable because she is so young and it's not like what is it out of this world was the similar sort of show but they were aliens i think where it was a teenage girl uh uh let's see was that what it was called and this is a precursor to third rock from the sun yeah out of this world was a show from uh from 1991 that was uh, similar in certain ways about how it interpreted adolescence as a sort of weird foreign state. Uh, but, um, but wasn't quite, she was older. So it was a little more comfortable, but yeah. So you're saying that the bottom of the, the frozen Lake, there's 11 a, a year old girl dressed in Victorian garb with like 80s makeup on.
2: <laughs> I think we actually undermined that idea. By okay. just oh, okay. poking a little bit around the edges and talking about, um, you know, our, our modern technology and the, and the and the artificial intelligence and concerns around that. Um, and likewise, we did with Alf as well, right? You can yeah. tell a certain immigrant story with that. Um, I think we got to uh, find something else
0: deeper. We, the, the, deeper. we have to go deeper into the <laughs> inferno. <And> so,
2: <laughs> so what I will now throw up uh, for consideration is this ridiculous laundry list of Hanna Barbera intellectual property <laughs> <laughs> like these little love pretty low quality cartoons from the 60s 70s and perhaps other decades as well that include uh characters that you just like might have the the, the, the faintest recollection of uh how should i put it captain
1: caveman
2: <laughs> right
1: what happens to yeah. Murgatroyd. <laughs> it's right. Snagglepuss. Yeah,
2: Snagglepuss, <laughs> Captain Caveman, other Hanna Barbera characters um, that barely had their moment in the sun back in that day. Um, if they were to be dragged out, well, I might undermine that as well too. Say like because you know so little was done with them before, and you just have that this rough inkling of a of an idea uh, over these characters and catchphrases and things like that that you could just radically change them and expand them out uh, while at the same time. Uh, getting that little benefit of nostalgia and, and, and brand recognition uh, from that. So maybe Hannah barbera isn't the bottom of the barrel. Maybe you have to go even deeper than that. <laughs>
1: Oh, oh boy! So, so fun little, fun little mini tangent on that is like there's actually a pretty well developed fan theory for Game of Thrones that suggests, and I actually tend to ascribe to this, which is to suggest that the backstory for the world of Game of Thrones, especially as explained by like the faction of the Red Priests of Melisandre, and I won't get into this too deep because this is not a Game of Thrones podcast. Is actually the, the, the a, priest
0: of the priest of Breloor.
1: Yes, that the story of the world of Game of Thrones, as told by the priests of Valor, is actually the plot of the early 80s cartoon show Thundar the Barbarian, (laughs) wherein a hero with a flaming sword and who prays to the Lord of Light has to go through like a blasted landscape or a ruined version of the real world and like fight the Great Other and these evil wizards and so it's like speculated and i and i and the more you like look for quotations and you like read descriptions of characters and what they're wearing at different times you're like oh yeah george r r martin totally watched thunder the barbarian <laughs> like it's it's in there in the culture i won't bore you with it now but uh but it, once we get back into game of Thrones season maybe i'll go into that in a little more depth because that Hanna barbera stuff and those sorts of trash cartoons are uh, are definitely in the consciousness oh man what the great race they did they the it did the amazing race. It was the what was the there was the there was the race show for Hanna Barbera? Do you remember what I'm talking about? Uh no. where it was like a crossover of all the Hanna Barbera shows. Uh what? Wacky races. Um there were crossover shows where all the Hanna-Barbera characters got in cars and raced each other. <laughs> and I can't believe that this isn't something that's come back already. Uh and snidely Whiplash was always like trying to cheat. Um, but yeah, Hanna-Barbera, man, that's, uh, that's deep. That's going deep. You got, um, oh man. Well, that's, we got- yeah.
0: Cause, cause here's the, th- a lot of Hanna-Barbera was nonsense, right? Yeah. And I think that we'll know that the, the cultural impoverishment, uh, is complete, right? Like when each generation can't generate its own nonsense, you know, that yeah. like that, that the sort of non-signifying aspects of, of pop culture, right? Like, so if you couldn't, so maybe it's like Lewis Carroll or something uh, submerged up to his submerged up to his um uh, uh waist in ice in the bottom of the, uh, yeah. in the bottom of the Inferno or something or something like that.
1: Yeah. Well, I just remembered, Mark, that's happened. The Hanna-Barbera the reboot we've been talking about is Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law. Do you remember that show from the mm. like, two, from the two thousands mm-hmm. with Stephen Colbert and stuff? Uh, yeah, because I was just looking up where Quick Mo- Quick Draw McGraw because I'm sure all this stuff has actually already been rebooted and there's a Small Wonder reboot that killed in India or something that we just don't know about. But I was just was really amused by the line on Wikipedia that says Quick Draw McGraw made a cameo in a MetLife commercial in 2012. <laughs> it's just like, yup, <laughs> anything is. This is a horse. This is a Hanna Barbera horse that was in a cartoon between 1959 and
2: 1962 <laughs> as a sheriff. <laughs> and, I mean, well, if we're talking about commercials, right? You know, Alf uh, appeared in a Super Bowl ad as recently as 2014.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and it's it, just, it, oh man. So, so okay, so Lewis Carroll. So we were at, <laughs> so what we're saying is that what what needs to be created anew that is then going to be is Is a, a sense
0: is a sense of what needs to be created anew, like what the the the. Uh, what the culture needs to create anew is a sense of frivolity, right? Like, is a sense of of the the extraneous and the superfluous, right? And if you are doing, if you are doing, because um, like the the idea of nostalgia sort of precludes superfluity, right? Like, because it the because uh, there's something sort of necessary, right? There's an emotional need that's being unmet that the nostalgia helps you to. Well, do do a couple things. It helps you maybe to uh, avoid. It helps you to displace, um, or helps you. I mean, there there are a wide range of psychological defenses that nostalgia could be deployed in the service of, mobilized in the service of. But the the uh, the thing that you can't do is is pointlessness right like the thing that you, the thing that you can't do is just uh uh kind of mindlessness and when i when i think about like i don't know my favorite when i think about my favorite um after uh after school cartoons or something like that when i think about my you know it it's ones where there was no they were almost non-rhetorical, right? Like, they weren't aimed at making me a better citizen or like, you know, like, uh, uh, a lot of the Saturday morning ones were, or like teaching me the virtues of friendship or things like this. It it, it was just, uh, a, a sort of, um, there was a kind of weird, pleasant nihilism to them. And that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, I think once, once you get, you know, uh, once you start retreading that. Maybe it's like the Animaniacs reboot. That will be the uh uh you know that will be the the death of us all, the death of the culture.
1: Or like the live action Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers that yeah. might come at some point.
0: Yeah, Tailspin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Tailspin <laughs> I, was my was my favorite because I liked I liked Baloo the bear. Yeah.
1: Man, I get I'm thinking it's just it's 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 just there's the fanatic impulse. I just the desire to see it all burn down. I don't know. Like they should reboot Paw Paws, the like racist Native American cartoon about teddy bears from 1980. No, they shouldn't. But like, what they gotta run out. Oh, they do Paw Patrol, which is not. It's different. It's very different because they're not Native American. Uh, oh man, it's just it's it's just it just keeps going and going and spiraling and spiraling. I just feel like maybe the pace of it is just faster than maybe. I mean, maybe I'm just getting old. Is it? Maybe it's the desire to try to keep keep up with things, like they're not gonna do Hong Kong fooy, you know, there's so many old ones that they that they can't do
0: anymore. Well yeah, like not not to not to cast dispersions on fellow overthinkers who are not here to defend themselves, but let's talk some S about Belinky for a second. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why? What do you mean? But he, no, let's, he, not be, let's not say he likes Hong Kong foo or no, anything. No, 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 that's no. Very, that's he, too mean of a thing to say about anybody. So. He,
0: uh, he embarked on a project, and he and I talked about it, uh, not on overthinking it, but we just, you know, we do talk outside of these uh, outside of these artifacts, these uh, shows that we put on the internet. Um, though, though uh, it seems less and less real every day, and unless we're recording it. The conversation doesn't, you know, because of the ravages of time or something like that. Um the uh he uh, embarked on a project to learn who the big YouTube creator celebrities are, right? Uh I think out of keep up with the Joneses, just yeah, to, like be able to be current. I don't even yeah. think there are any Joneses, right? I don't I think he's in a, <laughs> I think he's in a uh just a set of one of you know early middle aged uh early middle-aged fathers who like care about this aspect of the culture, you know, unless you like work. In that field, you know, doing product. The father placement.
2: being the keyword, is he trying to just relate to his preteen son?
0: Yeah, not to I, too much in his personal life, but well, I think that's part of this. By the way, his son's going to be a teenager this year, which is uh, super, uh, wow. super uh, scary for me because. Um, you know i don't know uh it just uh means the time marches on but the the uh yeah I, I think that but i think also like he views it as you know he used to be current like he used to be in the mainstream of of uh of the culture and and now is not and so like it's a it's a way of kind of reclaiming some sort of relevance some sense of being at the table or in the conversation uh in in a way, I mean, isn't it isn't it ironic? Like growing up, sitting at the kids' table, I always wanted to get at the grown ups table, and who knew that uh, you know when I when I became a man, I uh, picked up childish things again and and made a uh, made a study of of you know how I could understand them even more broadly.
1: <laughs> man, I I just found out that three months ago, DC Comics launched a series called. Exit stage left, the Snagglepuss Chronicles, wherein the Hanna-Barbera character Snagglepuss is reimagined as a gay Southern playwright from the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've reached the I- Lake of Ice, gentlemen.
0: <laughs> but no, so it's, it's Tennessee Williams standing up to his waist <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the Lake yeah. of Ice, right? Oh, gosh.
1: But yeah, so like, there's the what the desire to be current i guess that's the question is is it supposed to be high effort or low effort are we supposed to be doing more work or less work in order to be entertained by these sort of like well you have to keep track of all the infinity stones and you got to know what happened in all the movies or is the whole idea that they're supposed to tell us a story that's familiar to us, so that we can access it while we're also like dealing with adult things, like how you know Blakey is a father and whatnot. Yeah, and, that, and like and like, like actual
0: like your actual duty of care towards your your actual yeah. children, which means yeah. that like you know the right thing to do is is turn off uh, your rewatch of all the all the MCU movies and <laughs> go go spend some time outdoors with your son. But the the um, yeah. Uh is it I mean, I think that, that you've really hit on something, Pete, when you ask, is it supposed to be more work or less work to be entertained? And I, I feel like a lot of a lot of the answer that we're getting now in the culture is uh more. More work, right? <laughs> like more work. It costs more. You have to buy a new pack of uh, a new set of packs of, of <laughs> MTG cards every three times a year.
1: Well, you, you still know. had to do that, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just imagining the Fred Figglehorn uh, gritty reboot <laughs> of the like mid aughts YouTube personality. Um, but oh man, yeah, it is. It is. There, there's there's like this idea that it has to not just be. A uh, story. It has to be a relationship, and you have to hold up your end of the bargain by, you know, watching and keeping up with things and stuff. And and uh, it's just it's just interesting. Then then how? Why is the one hurdle that we can't jump over getting outside of these like reboots? really getting outside of, like, uh, why are they still having a royal wedding so much the same way as they used to have royal weddings? Why can't they, like, tell a new story? Why do we keep doing that reboot over and over again? Um, like, Windsor Castle, why not have it on a moon base? You know, that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> it's so it's so cliche. Uh, and yet, at the same time, I'm expected to know more about the royal wedding than I did in the past. Yeah, <laughs> right? like, I
0: mean, I, like, I don't know. Like, in, in The Crown Season 1, right? Like, it's, uh, why can't we, why shouldn't we have the royal wedding the way we did before. No, we're going to put television in Oh no, it wasn't the wedding, it was the coronation. Um yeah. right? Like and, and in this one I think that there's a lot of uh there's a lot of attention on it because it's being narrativized as like uh the the royals because joining the modern age in that there are, you know, issues of, of representation, right? Like who are yeah, we're back you to know, that again. Who right. is your who is your avatar in the royal family? Right? <laughs> and that's uh you know <laughs> So that's, I think it's a corgi at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Piu. Corgi you,
1: speaks for me and yeah.
0: <laughs> You you are indeed an adorable fuzzy man.
1: I like sweaters. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Let's, uh,
0: let's call it for this week. This, is, this has been a this lot of... This is the up. bottom. This
1: is the icy <laughs> lake. Is, is, is royal <laughs> family fan fiction where you put yourself in the story as a corgi wearing a little sweater and running around the feet of Queen Elizabeth? That's the bottom of the lake of <laughs> ice <device> for you. <laughs> <laughs> rough, okay.
0: rough, rough, I barked as I scurried about Her Majesty's sensible pumps. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, we could do, we could do a, uh, we could do a whole thing. There was a great flurry of activity. Usually there weren't many, uh, many people in the presence room as this. I wondered what was going on as I chewed on a milk bone and growled under my breath. No? Nothing? All right. Well, uh, the, the, end of the, uh, the end of the story is left as an exercise for the listener in the comments on this episode. Just visit the show notes on the site and uh, finish off the, uh, the story of Peter the Corgi and his adorable sweater. Um, have a, a wonderful week. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve.